Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast with Dennis and Kevin. Our guest today is Josh Kuntz. Josh is the former Western U.S. Regional Director for BHA. Josh had reached out wanting to talk about executing a fly-in hunt. We get into all sorts of topics from planning the trip, his sleep system, proper tent stakes, dead man anchors, and lessons from the trip. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Josh Coons. Josh, how's it going, man? How are you doing? Oh, it's going great. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, anxious to hear what Kevin's about to divulge. We were just bantering a little earlier, and he, he was saying that uh, he's got a little nugget here to share with us. So it, It's not about uh, my vulnerability, but you uh, mentioned, Josh, that being out in the mountains can make you feel humbled, right? And, and probably vulnerable, right? And I would agree with that. I think a lot of us that spend a lot of time out there um, feel a bit humbled, awestruck, vulnerable, small, put in our place, right, instead of rah-rah, tough. Anyway, Chris, Prin, you're right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I did. Awesome. (laughs) He had this story last week about someone he was camping with. Um, when they backpacked in and that he woke up in the night and they were screaming and he was trying to ignore it. And then he kept hearing screaming and then they yelled something like, it's got me or whatever. And he went outside and the dude was sleeping under a tarp in like a fully enclosed bivy, like an OR or something, right? And there was a bear dragging him away in his bivy sack. Oh. So his bivy sack became essentially a grocery getter bag. Right? <laughs> and I bet you that guy feels vulnerable outside now. You yeah, know? that would do it. Hmm. Yes. It's, it's hard to forget that one, right? Every night um, when you go to sleep being like, remember that one time that bear drug started dragging me away and, you know, was maybe trying to eat me. <laughs> right. um, I wonder if he needs like meds or something to go backpacking. Yeah. Like well, anxiety well, stuff. Well, that reminds me of a very embarrassing story, if you guys like me to start with something sure. along those lines. Sure. I was on a solo either scouting trip or an elk hunting trip when I lived up in Bozeman, uh, which is where I'm from. And I had somehow, I think I had just purchased a new sleeping bag from like the secondhand store because it was such a good deal. And I'm a pretty big guy. You know, I'm 6'3", 190 pounds. It's so not everything fits me great. And I never even thought to like slide into the sleeping bag. And I get up. It's a beautiful day, so I don't set up a shelter. I just, you know, go to sleep, and uh, I slide in this thing, and it's so snug around my shoulders. I can just, like, I really can't move. So I, I manage to fall asleep, and my arms are, of course, down in the sleeping bag. And in the middle of the night, I feel, like, pressure on my forehead. And, you know, your mind instantly races. You're coming out of a groggy sleep, and I assume that it's a bear or a mountain lion or something aggressive. And I go into, you know, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. But instantly, your first reaction is to bring your arms out. Well, I can't move. I'm, like, stuck in there like a freaking burrito. <laughs> and so I just start thrashing and screaming high-pitched screams. Do all this. Manage finally to get a hand out. Turn on a headlamp. Zip around trying to look for eyes in the dark. And right next to me, 
is a freaking field mouse that had just wandered up onto my head, and that's all it was. <laughs> but I mean, my my heart rate went just through the roof, assuming I was about to be mauled, and just had a mouse walk onto my head. <laughs> uh, that that feeling, right, of not being able to move, or at least move where you want to move. Oh. Yeah, that's not a that's not at a good deal. At least it wasn't a bear dragging you away. Yeah, mm. yeah. I had a, a sim- well, not similar at all, but a different situation where I was taking a midday nap. Um, this was in the spring. I think it was spring bear hunting in Montana, and it was just freaking beautiful out. And uh, I had fallen asleep on this nice knob, but this was in grizzly country. So I'm just sleeping out under the sun, and I wake up to a noise, and as my eyes open, I just see something brown and big coming straight at me. And I just full panic because, you know, I'm up in like – I think it was about 8,000 feet. I'm, I know there's elk and deer around. We've we've seen some bears in there before. And in the two seconds where I'm just like backing up, trying to scramble for, I can't remember if I had a pistol or bear spray, it takes me the full two seconds to realize it's a sandhill crane. And I had unknowingly gone to sleep right where a pair of sandhill cranes had had, you know, some young with them. But I was in between them and they had just wandered up over the knoll saw me and freaked out and you know they opened their wings they're huge birds huge yeah yeah and just not what you're expecting there were some high mountain lakes nearby and holy shit did my, <laughs> my heart get raised were, on that so were they squawking at you too like, oh yeah the yeah, full squawk full, yeah. yeah and i'm sure that's what woke me up they just saw some weird lump there and i was it turns out when i started thrashing around um the little sand hill it was like 10 yards to my left i had no idea mm. so they just went into defensive parenting and i was the idiot just laying there in the grass <laughs> how long did how long did you have to sit there and catch your breath right oh, like, like I, was your i would imagine your heart's just laying on the floor somewhere oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean getting back to what we were talking about being humble i think it, it happens quicker when you realize it was embarrassing the first thing you probably do is look around to see if there's anybody else out there Watching you. Give, yeah but then what can you do just laugh at yourself and like all right nap's <laughs> over Plenty awake now. They're going to post this on social media, are they? Yeah. I think I escaped that. That's one of the benefits of solo hunting. Nobody sees your embarrassing moments. Uh, <laughs> it'd be really funny if someone had you on a phone scope, you oh, know, God. and just, just this giant bird chasing you around a field. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's out there and has that, they can send it to us. Uh, yeah. Podcast at seekoutside.com. We'll, we'll give a $100 reward. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um. Yeah, Josh, so we uh, we had some email correspondence. We started talking, um, and you had an idea uh, to, to kind of do a podcast on uh, planning slash executing a fly-in hunt. Um, and, and I think most people, we've talked about this before, Kevin, on the podcast with some folks, um, but most people think uh, fly-in hunt being, you know, like remote Alaska, somewhere where you essentially have to take a plane everywhere. Um, but it you um, did a flying hunt this fall um, in the Frank Church. Is that correct? Yeah, I live here in Boise, Idaho, and this is my first chance to, to hunt the Frank. Um, there was actually four of us that went in this fall uh, for a week, week-long hunt in November, a rifle mule deer hunt. Um, so it was, my, it was my first experience doing a flying hunt, so I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert. Um, but as we were kind of mm-hmm. talking about before we hit record, I come from a background of logistics of special events, so I'm a super organized guy and take uh, planning for my hunting trips very seriously and this is a great chance to really uh, put those skills to the test to fine-tune a plan for a hunt and 
and make sure we had all the right gear and and uh, it was important because there were a lot of logistics on this this was a not just a fly and hunt where you hunt based out of where you get dropped off um, we actually decided to set up a base camp at the airstrip or I shouldn't even say a base camp that makes it sound like we're staying there but we had a, a shelter set up in case we need to come back to the airstrip um, but then our plan was to backpack in several miles establish a camp and then possibly even spike out from there if our if our uh, hunting opportunities warranted going further. So, so let's back up real quick. You just yeah. mentioned that you're super organized, super detailed, and super good at you know event planning and stuff. So, do you use a lot of gear spreadsheets? Because I mean, that's kind of you know backpackers and hunting. You know the Andrew Skirkas of the world on the hunting forums. Everyone talks about your spreadsheet or whatever and i've been incredibly poor at that myself <laughs> um so what do you do since you're basically an organization no professional even above the backpacking part yeah so uh, great question I, I basically have two primary tools and yeah one is a spreadsheet so it's a google spreadsheet and what i have there is every single piece of my backpacking and hunting gear it's listed out, it's organized by category, and then I weigh every single item to the tenth of an ounce. And so I can sort that by weight or by category. Um, and then I highlight the primary items I take. Like my main thing is archery elk hunting in September in Idaho, so fairly mild climate. So I have that those items that I always take color-coded. And then I have a second color for items that I may take if the weather gets nastier. And then a third color for other things that I rarely take, or maybe I would take on a fun family backpacking trip or a backpacking trip with friends. Um, so I have all my gear in that spreadsheet. And then the second tool I have is uh, what I just call my, like I think I just call it my uh, gear list for a hunt. And it's an actually just a, an outline. It's a Google Doc, but it's not in spreadsheet form. It's in an outline form where I have even lengthier descriptions of each item and like what modifications I might make based on what I'm taking. And the same principle, I have my primary stuff that I almost always go to and then I list the other options and what conditions I might take those in. Um, so for this Frank hunt, what I did is I went to that Google Doc and I basically copied it and then made a, a second document and went through and modified all the gear options based on the weather I was expecting and the duration of time in there and the number of guys and all that. Um, so those two, I've, I've used it just with those two tools, I can pretty much do any type of trip, whether it be a, a mountain biking trip with the family, um, solo backpacking, car camping. I just basically use those two formats. So, um, on your trip, on your fly-in hunt, were you with anyone I might know? Yeah. Uh, just one guy, uh, BHA employee, Ace Hess here out of Idaho. I don't know if you have a chance to meet Ace no. yet. Um, he's probably a really, really a smart guy, um, super woodsy. He worked for the BLM for 16 years, real avid shed hunter, hunter of all sorts. Um, and he's also a raft guide. So he was a big resource because he knew the country uh, pretty well from both hiking around in there on backpacking trips and from being a raft guide. So he, he was a big source of information to get us started. Um, and then one of the guys on the trip was, uh, I don't know if you've met him, Kevin, he's been in a few BHA rendezvous. He's one of the, he's been on the Idaho chapter board for several years, a gentleman named Tyler Wicks. 
Uh, and then our fourth guy was Ace's cousin, and he actually didn't have a tag. He was just along for the adventure. Um, he's a non-resident of Idaho and wasn't sure, based on COVID and work situations, if he was even going to be able to come. So um, he went with us, didn't have a tag. He was just a, an extra hand to have in there and a good cook, thankfully, <laughs> and a really nice guy. His name was Lee. So he's like a gold mine engineer. So, oh, really? So yeah. How, so how did your gear list change? With the fact of that it was flying, um, you mentioned you had different camps set up, and of course, with flying, it's still pretty weight conscious. But you, it's not on your back for all of it. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's exactly where we started. So not only do we have to think about the flying piece, but of course, we had to think about how far we were planning to hike into where we wanted to set up our primary camps, because that would dictate, of course, how much weight we can carry based on the distance and the topography. So. In pre-planning, we'd identified an area that we wanted to camp. Um, and so we had like, all right, that doesn't seem like too bad of a hike. We can do it the same day we fly in and uh, thought we could do it with, you know, pretty heavy packs, like 65 to 75 pound packs. So the goal was after we landed to set up a shelter at the airstrip and leave some supplies and then still take 65 to 75 pounds on our back to go into our, our main base. So the biggest change is for from a backpacking trip is that we did have this shelter there at the airstrip. And many years ago, I stumbled across a gigantic dome tent on clearance. And so I have this old Mountain Smith six-person dome tent that's tall enough to stand up in. Um, and that was a concern because, as you guys may know, on any flying hunt, especially November in Idaho, you might not be able to be picked up on the day that you're scheduled to be picked up. So one of the planning things was got to make sure we have some supplies and a comfortable base camp um, if we end up having to hang at the airstrip for a long time. So we took that big tent in there and um, the other thing we took were a couple really big coolers. One interesting thing for us is kind of lucky. Most people think of flying they're using little tiny planes. Well just based on where we were going uh, we were able to get into a beaver which if for those that are familiar will know it's a very large plane capable of carrying a lot. It's basically like the pickup truck of the plane world is my understanding. Um, so we took a 150 quart and 120 quart cooler that was loaded with gear and extra food mm-hmm. and you know the tent and when we landed we unpacked those set up the big tent uh, but those coolers stayed there which was really pretty sweet setup because we were able to get extra food or have extra food there and later in the trip when we made some meat runs we were able to bring some fun snacks and other supplies back to the main camp but then we were also able to put the deer meat into the, uh, the coolers we figured we might need the coolers if it was exceptionally warm. We were going to fly in with ice packs, so we'd keep the meat cold. Right. And if it was exceptionally cold, the coolers would help the meat from getting super, super frozen. I figured that was, you know, less important, but consideration nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we packed in some, you know, each guy basically left behind a small duffel bag with extra supplies. Um, being that I was kind of the most organized one, and these were my coolers, I kind of went overboard. I brought a lot of extra insulation layers and good food. I had, you know, peanut butter and Nutella and bagels and extra good beer back in the coolers. Um, which we'll get to, yeah, it worked out really good. It may have it may have been part of the motivation why I pulled the trigger pretty early in the trip because I figured if I made a meat run back to the airstrip, I knew there was cold beer back there I could bring back to camp. Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, in, in some of your notes, um, so you, you had all this stuff, you had kind of all, 
I'll refer to it maybe as like a garage, right? You had like a garage set up at the airstrip, um, and then you you went into a, a camp and a base camp, um, and then you experienced like all sorts of weather, right? Anywhere from five to kind of fifty-five degrees, and then multiple days of snow. It seemed like it was wet. Um, and yeah, and just can you talk to like some of the some of the keys to success for dealing with kind of all of that moisture that was going on? Yeah, so it made for a really interesting setup because it had been extremely mild in Idaho for several weeks before this trip, but we saw in the forecast we were going to get some nasty weather. Um, and we figured going into this that you know, we uh, had two Cimarrons with stoves, and we knew those would be key to stay out there and be comfortable, you know, have a hot tent. So that was going to be our primary shelter. And um, we saw the forecast, and we're like, oh, man, it actually is going to turn nasty the exact day we fly in. So we flew in and landed. It was 50 some degrees, sunny, warm. And in fact, the worst part about the hike in was overheating because we had gear on to stay fairly warm. We had heavy packs and we were trying to hustle to get in there, make sure we could get the camping area we wanted, see if there were any other hunters already in there. And secondly, we wanted to try to set up as much of camp as possible before it was supposed to start raining and snowing. And, you know, for once the weatherman was freaking dead on because, um, <laughs> We actually, as soon as we landed, we sent two guys. We sent Ace and his cousins. Just they, had, we, they left the strip to go straight up to the camp spot to try to get as much set up in the dry conditions as possible. And then we, Tyler and I, set up the, the big dome tent. Um, made a few mistakes, which I'll point out a little bit later. We may have rushed a bit. And uh, then we zipped up there as fast as we could behind Ace and his cousin. And thankfully, they found a good spot where we could get two Cimarrons, um, one other really important planning thing about this, in any trip where you're using the hot tent, obviously, is you need access to wood. And in this country, in the Frank, there's, uh, for those unfamiliar with it, it's like river breaks. It's extremely steep country, but it really ranges. There's not a lot of timber in certain parts of it or on certain slopes. Um, so you have to be fairly smart. And being that Ace is a river guide, he had thankfully scouted some camps where he knew there was going to be pretty decent wood. Um, there's also some fire restrictions that you have to be aware of in that particular corridor. So we had to actually pack in, you know, like fire blankets because you can't have a fire on the ground. Um, so there's some extra weight there. But yeah, we, we hustled in and we because we knew the big weather was coming, one of the things we took with us was a DST tarp. And in hindsight, we should have taken two. Uh, but I've done this on previous trips and it really was key on this one is we set up a DST kind of as an elevated lean-to over all our firewood that we collected. And we were able to put our camp chairs in there and then put our fire ring just out outside of that so that if the weather got nasty, we could eat dinner and make food kind of under some shelter um, and near near a heat source and then keep some key stuff pretty dry. So those DSTs were pretty key, um, you know, having the Cimarrons and not only, well, here was one challenge. We knew the Cimarrons are great, but I had never camped on a sandy beach before. And that was the conditions we were camped in. And we knew nasty weather was coming. So obviously you want to make sure those things are secure. Um, so ahead of time, I made sure I brought my biggest tent stakes. I had some of those nine inch twisty stakes that you guys provide. Mm. And then some seven inch kind of tri-fin style stakes. Those worked out pretty good. And then we just really tied off, we guide out really well, put big boulders over all the tent stakes to make sure that was uh, good and secure. And there was one of the areas where I was trying to secure the front of my Cimarron. Um, there was just a, a big boulder in the way right where you needed a tent stake. Well, not necessarily where you need it, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get a tent stake in the spot I needed to. Uh, but I was able to dig out an area and use a dead man anchor. 
Um, you guys are probably familiar with those, but mm-hmm. you can use them in snow or sand. And I'd never used one in sand before. It worked great. For those unfamiliar, like in this case, I just basically found a branch about the size of my forearm and dug a big hole in the sand, tied off a guy line, put that, that branch down in there perpendicular, put a bunch of sand back on there, and then put a big rock over the top. Um, and man, that thing held strong. Hmm. Yeah, we did uh, a dead man example in a winter camping um, tips video a few weeks ago. And it was really, uh, the snow conditions were really awful. It was about three feet of pretty much powder and about four inches of consolidation. And the only thing that really worked for anchoring a tent up on the snow was was a dead man style. And it was extremely strong. Mm. Yeah. For great in sand, for sure. Yeah, and, um, and people people can find that. We'll, we'll throw a link in here, but you can find it on our YouTube channel uh, where Kevin goes over kind of dead man in, in the snow. And again, that, that same process applies in the sand, right? They're both very similar mediums um, where you just want to bury you know, something pretty big, um, in the ground and use that to tie off to, um, mm-hmm. it works, works really well where you don't have good state conditions. You used it in the Northwest and like, uh, more of like Knowles courses and stuff like that as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a super common technique for ice, uh, for like, um, sorry, uh, glacier mountaineering. Um, any traveler, if you're yanking someone out of, out of a crevasse, uh, mm-hmm. bearing, bearing a dead man and then hauling people on that. Um, is very common so they're super strong especially in the snow you know like you could haul a, a volkswagen beetle with with a dead man anchor in, in the properly sized uh branch so yeah yeah um so dennis you just mentioned properly sized branch and since we're talking about camp setup i, I will share one little lesson learned you know on any trip i don't care how good your plan is you're going to make some mistakes and learn some things right and, um, that first night we got there we did get camp set up and then it started to rain which turned to snow and like I said, we set up this DST um, kind of over our cook area. But to maximize the room, I didn't want to have a support pole up the middle. So I strung uh, a line from that middle loop up to an overhanging branch on like a mountain mahogany. And it was, and never even thought about it. I had this thing tied off uh, to several different trees and some big rocks. Well, 5 a.m., I'd woken up a couple times during the night because it was, you know, it was wet, heavy snow all over the tent. And then I just hear this big crash at five in the morning. And I'm like, well, I kind of got to pee. That didn't sound good. I think I'm the only one awake. You do that thing where you're laying there, right? And be like, did any of my partners hear that? Is anybody going to go check this out before me so I don't have to be the one getting out of a cold sleeping bag? And I was yeah, like, that, Damn that's it. the, we're going to call that the Chris Prin, uh, the Chris Prin. Um, acknowledgement where he just waits and sees like, am I the only one that heard well, that? Or you got a fake snore. When, when that happens, you listen, and then you're like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, know, I, I... And, and fake snore, and, the, and then that way, that big loud fake snore actually reinforces the wake up of your tent mate, and mm. then they have no way out of it. And then then <laughs> then, then, then you kind of keep an eye just slightly open, and you're like, oh, you should go check that out. That sounds bad. <laughs> And then just pretend to snore again, like you're just sleep talking in your sleep. Well, I have a feeling that's exactly what Tyler did to me because I heard a snore coming from his side, and I was like, "Well, I better go check this out." And what had happened is that so much heavy snow had landed on top of the DST, the weight of the the tarp with the snow on it snapped the branch that I had tied off to, so there was no middle support, 
and the tarp collapsed down on all of our firewood that was supposed to be staying dry, um, our camp chairs, our cooking stuff. So I'm out there at five in the morning in my long underwear. It's just snowing like crazy, windy. Nobody else is awake, and I'm trying to re-rig this thing. But now I have no overhead branch. So I'm kind of putting, trying to makeshift trekking poles. Um, mm. And unfortunately, a bunch of the we had of course packed the firewood to the back of the DST, so we'd have more room to sit under it when we were eating. So a bunch of our firewood did get some moisture on it. It was less than ideal. Um, so lesson learned is if you're going to have an important tarp like a dry area make sure that thing can withstand any weather that might be coming in so mm. it should have tied off a little bit better yep. um, and but, sustained crappy weather a nice tarp to hang out in is awesome oh it saved me on a few different hunts um and along those lines one thing i haven't mentioned yet is we did have another shelter with us which I took the Eolus Ultralight, mm -hmm. which is a shelter I use for you know, solo backpacking, or I could use it with a buddy when I want to try to go really light. But it also, for me, it doubles as an emergency shelter. I just keep in my pack pretty much, not always in September, but almost always in October and November um, in case I, I hurt myself. I got to hang out there. Nasty weather comes in. It's plenty big. I can sit you know, two, three, four guys under there if we have to, to wait something out. Um, so we didn't set that up as our base camp because we... We're going to use that possibly to spike out, but I did take that with me every day hunting for that exact reason in case we just needed to wait out some nasty weather, somebody got hurt, or even um, one thing I haven't used it for yet, but I know other people have done this. I'm stealing this idea is if you do shoot something like shoot a deer and you know six inches of snow is supposed to come down that night and you're not going to be able to pack it out that day, you're going to be waiting to go back the next day, you can set up the shelter over the top of your animal to keep it from getting covered in snow or you know, mm. any other debris, something like that. Um, so yeah, we had the Eolus with us as well. It's just such a minimal weight penalty. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and do you find, um, so you use, you uh, always have trekking poles with you is you use trekking poles or yeah. Do I, I, I would, yeah, I can't even imagine not hunting with trekking poles now. I, I don't know how many years ago I made the change and now I just think back like how ridiculous it feels to not hunt with trekking poles especially in steep country, it's you know, like having four wheel drive. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I always have trekking poles with me and I think everybody in our group did and, and they were critical. We got in some steep, wet, nasty stuff that, I mean, I fell down several times with my trekking poles and without them, I, I probably couldn't, I don't think we could have got to any of the three deer we got. I would not have probably felt comfortable getting to any of those without trekking poles in the mm -hmm. conditions we were in. Um, you know, I mentioned that it, it had been really warm and then it snowed. So of course the ground wasn't frozen yet. So when the snow landed, it, that, that layer right against the ground was kind of like that wet, nasty snow. And um, I even brought in traction devices. I have these hill sound like micro spikes. Mm -hmm. And occasionally they would work out okay, but because the ground, the snow on the ground was still that kind of wet, clumpy snow, even when the, even when the temperatures dropped, the snow was building up on those micro spikes and creating big balls on the foot. And so most of the time I, they were not very helpful. Hmm. Um, have you ever tried screw shoes? I never have. I used to run in the winter in screw shoes, which you would put just a bunch of little, uh, like little, uh, machine screws into the bottom, screw them into yeah. the soles, uh, maybe screw five or six in. I've actually kind of thought because yeah, what you mentioned with the hill sound, that's going to happen with any of those traction devices in, in that kind of weather, right? 
yep. um, they're going to be challenging. I wonder if screw shoes would fare a little better. And, and probably, probably depends on the conditions. If it's if it's muddy underneath, probably not. Um, but I, I've contemplated like, oh, I wonder if I could carry screws and just make screw screws in the field if it was needed. <laughs> just got a uh, just got a pocket full just in case. Yeah, yeah. You just have like six, and you're like, oh shit, it's really slow. <laughs> it's an ultralight option for sure yeah yeah if you're willing if you're willing to put screws through your 300 hundred dollar hiking boots <laughs> you, you don't go all the way in the short um, um and so the ones you're talking about do they actually have spikes on them or are they you know because there's many different kinds of these yeah. micro spikes right where they're like the ro rolled coil um yeah these and, have and spikes I they're they're pretty familiar uh, similar to that real popular brand, I think it's Catula Micro Spikes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. They, they have pretty good spikes on them. Got and it. when the snow's not clumping on them, they work great. I mean, you get fantastic yeah. traction. You can use them on just dry land, coming down real steep stuff. It yeah. really helps. But I know, I know, in like in crampons, they make bail plates. They call them on. They go, they go in between the spikes to so snow can't stick, so they can fall out, or you can at least at least shed snow easier. You know, but um so micro spikes tent stick or uh trekking poles are a big one um do you find you know it makes sense to me right eolus if you're going to be using trekking poles having an eolus as your or a trekking pole style shelter as your kind of emergency shelter just makes so much sense right because you already have your poles with you you know there's not a whole lot of weight penalty you're going to take them anyways Exactly. That's that's why it's a great fit for me for two purposes, either as an emergency shelter to always have with me if I'm just out day hunting or scouting, or if I'm on some sort of backpacking trip where I'm moving camp every day. So I'll be packing it up and put it on my back, then there's no additional weight. Uh, most of mm -hmm. the hunting I do in Idaho, I, I'm more of a backpack into a place and set up a spike camp. Um, so I don't always, and then I like to have my trekking poles or at least one of them with me. Um, throughout the day so I don't always take a trekking pole shelter if that's the type of hunting I'm doing um, mm -hmm. well I've got some pretty light trekking poles sometimes I've been known to take three or four trekking poles if I'm going to use a trekking <laughs> pole shelter uh, but um, for six wheel drive yeah we do, exactly. make, we do make a little carbon pole that is similar in strength that I think is maybe four ounces mm -hmm. so that is for our trekking pole shelters if you wanted to pitch them I usually if I have to I cut a stick you know, um, yeah, super, super common for, um, people, you know, in, in our customers to bring a, a piece of cordage cut to 48 inches or 50 inches. Um, that way they can use that cordage to cut a nice stick yeah. to shove in there, you know, and then also use that cordage as a guy up point if they wanted to or whatnot. Well, one thing I did this year, one of my favorite spots to elk hunt, um, I've been backpacking into it for a few years and we often go in there and take a simmer on and, I just realized I found this sweet little camp spot this year and there was a downed tree that made for the perfect, uh, had a big, you know, the tip of it made it for a perfect pole. So I cut it to a perfect Cimarron length and I stashed mm -hmm. it in the trees right where I always camp. So now I don't even have to bring a pole in. Well, fast forward towards, I don't know, somewhere during the season, a forest fire breaks out pretty close to my hunting area. And one of the first thoughts through my head was, oh shit, don't burn <laughs> up my new Cimarron pole. <laughs> I just gone through this effort, and I was like, that that camp is just dialed in. I even have my own Cimarron pole in there, yeah. and uh, yeah, things that go through your head. But um, 
yeah, those, those shelters are, are pretty key back there. It is nice being able to, you know, use the things you're obviously carrying with you. But, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So did you guys film or do anything like that? Or was it just a peer, peer um, recreation trip? Peer recreation. Um, Ace is a pretty good photographer and he has a real nice big camera. Um, so he got some really cool photos. I think it was the first day of hunting. I wasn't with him. Um, he was with Lee, but they stumbled into a couple bighorn rams and you know, were in there during the rut for the bighorns. And they got to like 30 yards, these two rams that they were never actually butting heads, but they were posturing. And Ace got some great photos of the rams. And then because of the crazy weather we had, some of the pictures we have from our trip are just, you know, they make an average photographer look pretty impressive because the terrain was spectacular and the weather was would be sunny one moment and then big dark clouds would come in and fog and sideways snow and um, the day we packed Ace's buck out in like a one hour period it was just a little bit of everything um, including a nasty fog bank that rolled in and we actually it's a little bit scary for a while because we could hear a plane that was clearly just circling and you know, that mm. those river canyons are so tight. And we're like, oh man, this guy's in trouble. Um, but thankfully, that fog cleared after a while. But he, you can, you know, you kind of learn from being in there for a few days which routes the pilots use. And we're like, wait a second, that plane's not going from A to B. It's just hanging in this area, you know, trying to, I guess, maintain elevation and not run into anything. But hmm. um, yeah, that's scary. Yeah, it was weird. Um, you know, I noticed um, BHA sent out a email a few days ago um with when a seek outside shelter and a yeti and a sitka stuff right and the photo on uh, the weather was a photo i took of owen on a backpack hunt i think owen was maybe 14 or 15 he was young and we were camped at about 10 5 and it had been cloudy rainy and it just had started to break as the sun was setting and the sun was coming like splitting these clouds almost and it was, it was like 20 minutes of magic with a total hack iphone photography <laughs> but but they were just incredible photos because you just got that weather sunset split cloud thing on this ridge you know at the right time it was just awesome yeah we on this trip, we just lucked out all, all three of the bucks we shot when we were retrieving them for the pack outs. It was like Mother Nature was just serving us up aces for photography. Um, it made for a spectacular thing. In fact, I got to tell you guys one funny thing I've never had happen before. Um, so I, I got my buck first, and then the next day I went in with Tyler, and we, I'll get into the details of the story, we snuck up. Um, we bumped his buck, and then we made a big hike and got back onto it. And he had about a 300-yard shot, and I had already tagged out, so I was just looking through the binos and giving him a range. And it was on a pretty steep slope, but we couldn't quite tell how steep it was because everything in there is steep. And it snowed about three or four inches the night before, and Tyler shoots, and this buck just drops in its tracks. And you remember that scene in uh, Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation when he's on the sled that he put that super lubricant on, and he's just hauling ass, and it's just like going like crazy through the snow? Well, this deer starts sliding down the mountain and he's gaining speed so fast and it's in this powder and 
because there's big bitter brush and stuff, he's going in and out of our sight, but the whole time we can see this plume of snow that he's kicking up, this line of snow just hauling ass down the mountain, much like Chevy Chase did on his sled in Christmas vacation. And it was actually super helpful because we wouldn't have, you know, we would have had to hike all the way up and then track him down, but he slid down to about our elevation. But it was just it was one of those things you're like, am I really seeing this? And the, it was early in the morning, the, the snow crystals were going up and the sun was, you know, in our eyes. So it was like just, it looked almost cartoonish how there was this uh, line of snow just lingering in the air that was the perfect track where this bucket just slid down the mountain. <laughs> just a nice little dust trail. Yeah, it was handy. So, so what other tips here? So you guys yeah. were set well, up the river. Before I talk about tips, I want to compliment you guys on one thing that I never uh, – it was actually one of the things – you know, I've, I've been using your shelters for a long time and think very highly of them. But I was um, always kind of like, man, you guys put some big, heavy zippers on your shelters. And I'm kind of an ultralight thinker, and I was, I was like, that seems a little bit overkill, and I wonder if it's too much weight. Well, camping on sand made me so appreciative of those big heavy zippers because sand just blows in on everything and with rain and wet snow and if you're kicking up sand it's impossible to not get sand on your zippers and your zipper still operated through that those nasty conditions and I, I have a few other ultralight shelters from other brands that I really like but they have these tiny tiny zippers and in my mind I was going there is no chance that zipper would be operating for you know multiple days in these conditions so um thank you guys for building those big beefy zippers camping sand. Um, i mean e even with those beefy zippers there's a few that because of sand you know that we end up replacing each year usually mm -hmm. it's the pull but i mean it's it's about all we can do i mean sand is just so hard uh unless someone was really clever and tried to design some sort of zipperless yeah <laughs> no zippers well, um, here's one thing I will share that I did, and I, I stole this idea from, um, I'm not sure it's his original idea, but you guys probably know Ryan Jordan, the founder of BackpackingLight.com. Mm -hmm. And this is for cold weather camping. Um, so I, I run a nice 20 degree feathered friends down bag is my normal bag. Um, and as for this trip, I knew I would need something you know, more robust than that. And instead of getting a nicer temperature rated bag down bag I decided to steal this idea I read about that he had where he layers a 50 degree synthetic quilt um, over the top and so that's the system I went with and it worked flawlessly for a few reasons I'll get into um, but as you guys know on a multiple day hunt through your body and especially if you're in wet conditions you're, you're gonna transmit some moisture into your down bag well, that's having the synthetic layer on the top, just like a good wicking layer that you wear on your body, it pulls that moisture through the down and keeps your down dry. So I would wake up in the morning and that synthetic bag would be drenched. Uh, we had a couple nights with really bad condensation, but even in, on the non-condensation nights, I put off a lot of heat when I sweat, or excuse me, when I sleep. And I'd wake up and that synthetic bag was wet on the outside, like head to toe, and my down bag was completely dry. And so we would sit there and kick on the stove in the morning Knowing that you have to do this for multiple days, you want to make sure things are dry. So we had a, a fire going in the stove every single morning. And then I could slide out of the synthetic and still be in my down. So I'm still warm. And then that synthetic dries super fast. So I was able to dry that 50-degree synthetic. And then I would actually take that with me while we hunted, too, kind of as an emergency uh, mm -hmm. shelter, extra warmth while glassing. I've used that strategy quite a few times. In fact, I even uh, built a bivy sack 
that was a uh, had a light synthetic layer on top um, for expressively that kind of purpose, you know, to help move moisture when you get below freezing. And it works really well. And it also does give you something to provide a little emergency uh, emergency warming that you can toss in your pack as well. Yeah. Well, not one other mission is a pure down, but no, it's not as efficient. It just, yeah, like I said, the versatility. And one other thing where it really came in handy. Um, so I had seen photos of some people, and I'm sure you guys have seen lots of these, where people accidentally bump up against a hot stove in their down bag, and it burns a big hole, down goes everywhere, smells terrible, and now you have a bag with a major hole in it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what I learned, because I'm a somewhat careless sleeper, I flip and flop a lot, I didn't realize I'd done this, but I burned like three holes in my bag, but it was the outer bag, it was that synthetic little tiny hole, because it's a synthetic fill, it's all a you know, one piece insulation, it doesn't go flying out like feathers. So I essentially had minimal problems. You know, I, it didn't affect the performance of the bag at all, where had that been a down bag, I may have both burned a big old hole and lost a ton of my feathers, mm -hmm. and had a much bigger repair. So um, I was like, oh, this actually is a great system in here in the hot tent. There's also, there's also it. To how you position the door of the stove. Because I've had, I've only had it happen once. I'm pretty careful. But I've had embers come out and pop onto my Western Mountaineering bag. Um, and they, they were small, small holes, right, that I put a little tenacious tape over. Uh, but there is, like, how you position the door of the stove can help a lot with the ember stuff. Because even though we have, like, an ember guard in the intake, right, and then there's a door... Sometimes you get the right conditions and an ember can sneak through at the right angle and come popping out if you have the type of wood that's real poppy. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah and I, I don't even know if it was embers that got mine or if I just bumped up against the stove yeah. in there. Um, you were just kicking it all night. Yeah, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I uh, who knows? I'd, my buddy Tyler, who I was sharing the tent with, he had never been in a hot tent before and um, he... You know, we'd been there like day four, day five, you're a little bit tired and we'd be running the stove and it was, you know, we hadn't put wood in it for a while, but I don't know what he was thinking. And he laid his leather glove on top, you know, right there and just instantly burned several holes through his leather glove. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, and that gets to a question. The other guys on the trip, were they running the two sleeping bag system as well or did they have synthetic bags? No, I was the only one. I think everybody else just had a, a normal down bag. Just a big um, down. Yeah, and every, everybody else seemed to do just fine. I mean, obviously having the stoves. And one thing we did that um, you know, proves that we are not hardcore hunters is we would stay in the tent and get those fires roaring in the morning to get our stuff dried out, get, get into our clothes in warm conditions so that we knew we were going to come back to it at least relatively dry sleeping bags. And that really made a big difference. And some days we did not get out of camp very early. Mm. Um, but on this type of hunt, it's a it's a rut hunt, a deer moving through an area. It's less imperative to be up there at first light. And that's um, that was a note that you had, just spending adequate time drying your gear, whether that, you know, it sounds like you did it in the morning, maybe at night when you got back, with, if it had been raining on you guys, spending, like taking that extra time to make sure that your stuff was dry. Yeah. yeah, that is that is critical, um, in my opinion, because, I mean, nothing nothing demoralizes you more, right, than when you put on something that's wet and cold, and if 
throughout that day it doesn't get warm and you don't have a chance to dry it while you're wearing it, you're just like, man, it makes you really start thinking about getting out of there. Uh, and one thing we did, and I've just learned this through experience with using that Cimarron a lot, is I use a little bit of cord and run it from the center pole to a tie out um, and basically it ends up creating a, a little line between the two guys sleeping in there and I can we use that to dry things you can you know, hang things on mm -hmm. there and then way up at the top where the zipper poles are near the cone of the tent um, I just run another little line goes from those two zipper poles wraps around the pole once and it's just big enough you can put one sock on each side of the pole and it's right there at the the high point of the tent where all that heat is, you can dry a pair of socks mm. extremely fast up there. Um, and you always mm. happen to have little Velcro straps so, or cord with you. I was, the trip I did, the caribou hunt I did a few years ago with Hal Herring and um, Steve and Barry Whitehill, um, we had weather. We were socked in for probably four days. Um, it was on the north slope of Alaska, the Attigan Sega SAG. Um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the full pronunciation of the SAG. But when we got to, we left one camp, we got to another camp. I set up the Cimarron. It was on a gravel bar, right? And it had snowed and we'd just been in the river and it was cold and stuff. And literally without my, my um, me starting any of this, there, the Cimarron was full of willow. The, the whole group had come together and like, we need to get some stuff dry. And the Cimarron was full of willow. There wasn't really anywhere to go in, even in there. So we moved some of it out. Then me and Manny, um, we really effectively sat in the Cimarron feeding the stove probably for six hours and people were just bringing us, can you dry this and this for me? You know, we'd hang it up. And can you dry this? <laughs> you know, and but I mean, is a game changer as far as oh. the more, the morale, moral morale of the group, right? I mean, because it, when you've been in that 25 to upper 30s rain, slush, sleet, you're next to a river, snow, and you've been in there just multiple days, kind of socked in, it, it kind of starts to, I don't know, put weight on your shoulders and you start feeling like, oh. So. Well, perfect example, on, on our hunt, we ran into an outfitter and they, there's an outfitter in there that can pack people into drop camps. And they were going in to pull out two guys, two former military guys who we later saw. And these are you know, fairly young guys, big, tough looking guys. And they had gone in right as about the same time we did and big wet storms came and they just had a two person dome tent and they got wet, their gear got wet and they were supposed to be in there for a week and they pulled out after two days because they were just wet and cold and had no way to dry themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to disparage these guys. They might be you know, super tough guys, great hunters. And I, I'm not, I'd probably have done the same thing because you're just like, come on, what's the end game here? And especially when the weather forecast is for continued moisture. Mm -hmm. just, yeah, it changes from more of a hunting trip to more of a survival trip. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And as Dennis mentioned, we kind of adjusted our, our hunts to be like, all right, we know we're going to be in here for many days. And that's a key, one of the keys to success on the hunt is the deer are going to be there eventually. They just kind of keep moving through the area. So, just time in the field is your your best you know best tool to to fill your tag. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, all right, just don't make any mistakes. Make sure we can get out each day, and if that means having to hang in camp for an extra couple hours and dry things, no problem. That's what we're gonna do. Um, and along those lines, Kevin, you just alluded to it. 
prepping, if you know you're going to be in for a long time, prep as much dry wood as you can ahead of time. And one thing we learned is especially the kindling. You know, you go through little the kindling and the pine needles and your fire starter really fast when you're, you're making a lot of fires. Mm-hmm. Um, it worked out for us. I think we had to do a little bit more kindling like on day five or so. But um, for the most part, we worked out. But it was great on that first day. We just went gangbusters, you know, getting wood prepared. And one thing you guys probably done as well is you know it's faster to break wood than cut wood if you if you can when you're dead mm-hmm. fall around and uh, we were on these sandy beaches there's boulders all around ranging from like volleyballs to the size of cars so we arranged some boulders um, so we could lay branches across you know elevated a foot or so and just use our our heels to snap snap branches and we made sure we got one that just fit inside the stove and kept that around as our our measuring tape to make sure everything else we broke would be smaller than that and just makes it really fast and efficient um but one mm-hmm. pointer is, is when you know you're snapping those sticks with your foot it's not exactly a precision tool you occasionally get a flyer that comes winging up back at your head <laughs> or towards your buddy sure. so um, i did throw on some sunglasses after i almost took some shrapnel to the face there at one point uh, yeah so you can also use between two trees yeah as a break as well yeah, you it's know. way faster than cutting everything. It is. I, I typically, probably when it gets November, I typically take a saw, though, because uh, I can cut something about this big around with a little silky saw, and that will run quite a while in the stove and keep keep the stove maybe, like, a few years ago, my son Eli and I, um, he had a sleeping bag failure, um, lost a bunch of feathers. It wasn't from hitting the stove, but the zipper failed, and we loaned the sleeping bag to someone. It came back. We didn't knock it off. We just grabbed it and took it on the trip. And it had a hole in it and a broken zipper. And we had loaned an air pad to someone. And it turned out that that didn't hold air anymore either. So Eli was out on a elk hunt with a flat air pad and a quilt with a hole in it, essentially, right? Um, so after his first night of misery, um, we set to making some big logs the next day. And we managed to keep that tent with a load every two hours. Um, I think we managed to keep that tent probably 45 degrees all night. And he would throw some wood in there, um, say at 10, and I would throw some in at midnight. He threw some in at two. Um, The downside was it was about 10 degrees that morning and we were ready to go hunt. It was good weather for elk hunting. And he was far more happy to spend time in the tent stoking the stove. They were warm. Yeah, it was kind of a motivation killer for him. Um, So I was like, well, whatever, you know. That'll happen. Um, So I got a I got a couple questions for just just from what we were were talking about. fire starter did you do you bring a fire starter is there something that you prefer that you like to have around as far as you know like an emergency fire starter i guess or some some fire paste or or something along those lines yeah i I use two different things i always keep um some of those i think they're called wet fire kind of like a chemical tab very lightweight i always keep a couple of those with me in my emergency supplies at all time and for this trip i did bring a fair amount of those with me i also just do the trick where at home, I got a plastic container that I'll, I'll bring the dryer lint out, rub up a bunch of Vaseline in there, stuff that into you know, a small container or put in some aluminum foil and take it on trips. Um, that's it. We almost ran out of fire starter. So um, 
Hmm. I'm, I'm not the world's greatest Boy Scout, and we certainly were able to get fire going with just pine cones. Um, but we also, I had heard about this from your, I think it was maybe on your podcast with Andrew Skirka, or I heard it from him somewhere, that you can use Mylar bags, like the, the little ones that typically come with, like, in a cliff, your cliff bars in. Those actually burn pretty well. Um, hmm. So just to try that out, we tried a few of those, and they, they do work pretty well, but they burn a lot faster than, you know, your, your production uh, fire starter tabs. And sure. then speaking of mylar, one another mistake we made is I sometimes use just those mylar ground sheets because uh, they reflect warmth, they're crazy light. Well, they were not nearly durable enough for a seven-day hunt in, based on sand, and my ground sheet just got torn to hell during the course of this hunt. So as, as pieces of that would rip off, I would just use those as a fire starter. Um, <laughs> and uh, it worked out mm. well. But, yeah, the fire starter's key. I, I do have a question for you guys since you, you know, use stoves all the time yourselves and know a ton of customers that do. Has anybody identified a really good, uh, fairly lightweight, long lighter? They just You can certainly light the stoves with just a regular lighter, but you know it's kind of handy sometimes to reach towards the back of those. And other than the, the ones you, you know, everybody has for their barbecue, they're not terribly mm. heavy, but I was just wondering if anybody's come across a lighter, better option than that. I haven't, what, I, what I've done, let's go back to fire starter real quick. I use the wet, I take a couple of the wet fires as well um sometimes some vaseline cotton balls um sometimes i'll also take a couple sticks of fat wood or if i have time around camp when i'm prepping camp and i can find some fat wood or some sappy uh a tree that's very sappy i will basically save that stuff for a fire starter um there's another fire starter i can't think of the name of right now i, I have some at home and oftentimes, if I think the weather is going to be really shit, um, I take that um, because it burns extremely hot. So when you got really crappy wood um, that's really wet, it helps get that kind of dry and ignited pretty fast. And it's just a little packet about this big, and you can probably get about three fires started out of it. It's probably not quite as light as the Vaseline or the wet fire, but it burns at a much higher temperature. Um, I'll see if I can find it, just Googling around as we're. Yeah, I, re I remember us looking at that, because it, doesn't it come in like a, you could buy it in like a five gallon bucket almost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, seems to work pretty good. As far as like a, um, like a longer lighter or a longer torch, um, you know, or, or maybe torch is a better name for it, um, there's, I have, uh, and I'm not saying this works great, but um, it does work. I have a Soto um, torch, kind of lighter. It's like a really small refillable with like the isobutane little canister, like a Zippo lighter thing. Um, and that has an extendable handle on it, and it gets longer. Um, that can work. The problem with those Sotos is they don't like the light very, very well. So it's like a catch, you know, like it can work, but if it doesn't light, it doesn't, you know. Um, so it can take, be pretty finicky on how you light it. Um, another thing I know people have used um, that I'm not sure if they make anymore um, is a Snow Peak, the Snow Peak Giga Torch. Um, and you can essentially bring one of your really small isobutane canisters, and it screws onto that, and you can light it, and it's and it's a torch. So if you um, if you had really wet wood or or you needed you know you needed to start a fire like right now um that thing and then again it has a longer head on it yeah um, and it's pretty packable 
and you might have a jet boil canister with you anyways, you know? Um, so since we're talking about staying warm, uh, one thing I did think of that we did that actually worked out pretty well, as I mentioned, we had this big dome tent back at the airstrip and we had that fully set up before we left for two reasons. Well, the, the main one being if somebody got a deer and it made sense to start packing it that day, or they packed it back to the airstrip and didn't have time to return to camp in the day, you'd have a, a warm place to stay. So we actually had an extra like sleeping pad and sleeping bag there. But because we had the extra room in the airplane, I actually brought like a you know, Mr. Heater Buddy and some propane tanks in there. And on the very last night that we were in, we actually did stay at the airstrip. And it was really nice to be able to fire up a propane heater. And obviously that comes with the downsides of condensation, but um, having mm -hmm. a big tent to stand up in. And, um, oh, I got to share this with you guys. Speaking of this big dome tent, I alluded to it earlier that we made a little bit of a mistake in our haste setting up this dome tent. I'd, I've only used this huge dome tent a couple times on family trips. So we get in, try to set this thing up. Like I said, the weather conditions are good. We know snow is coming in. So, you know, dome tents are fairly straightforward. You put the poles through the sleeves or the clips and tie everything down in the corners and head out. We threw the coolers in the vestibule and off we went. Well, we come back a few days later after Tyler and I got our deer. We were, he and I did our, pack both of our deer back to the airstrip in the same day to put them in the coolers. We get there, and we start walking up, and I noticed the tent seems a little bit different, but I'm like, you know, looks good. I was happy. I'm like, it's standing up there. Still standing, yeah. Good. And right as we're walking up, there's these uh, two other hunters, probably in their 60s, that had been in there. They had a, they'd flown in a giant wall tent. And uh, they're walking by, and they happen to pass us right by the tent. And they said, oh, is this your blue tent? I said, yeah, that's mine. And the guy looks at me and goes, well, that thing's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I started chuckling. He says, yeah, it was it was laying flat after that first snow, right after you guys left, and uh, we put it back up for you. And I was like, huh. "Wow, well, you know, super nice of them to do that." And he says, "By the way, did you did you tie all the like where the rain fly goes over? There's all these spots you can tie the rain fly to the um, support poles." Mm -hmm. I, I thought to myself, I said, "I do not remember doing that." Not only did I not do that on all four sides, I forgot to tie the one in the at the top that kind of keeps everything structurally held together. So as that weight came down, the, the two different support poles just slid apart from each other. So a fair amount of the reason the tent collapsed was user error, and we got bailed out by these two nice guys. That said, <laughs> um, when we when we did spend the last night there, we did get a bunch of wet snow that kind of turned to ice overnight. And man, that big dome tent was sagging in big time, and I was sure wishing that we had a giant like seek outside teepee with us because just structurally, I think in that heavy, wet conditions, it would have been way better. Um, you know, and it's still, obviously, if you get a big enough teepee, you can still stand up in there. Um, plus it would have been smaller to pack down, you know, give you more room on a flying hunt. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons I reach out to you guys is after doing all this, where we basically had three different shelter options to potentially have three different camps. I realized like, not that I'm aware of, is there another company that you, like, you have a giant shelter for uh, your airstrip camp, a backpacking shelter that's where you can have a hot stove and then still have another option either through like the Eolus or the Silex or the, um, you know, a DST tarp to go spike out from there. And yet then they all still pack down pretty dang small. So uh, just, you know, Don and me, and I'm sure you guys have thought of this, but I'm like, man, you guys kind of kind of have it head to toe with some solutions for a hunt like this. Mm -hmm. Oh, we do. And I mean, some of it's intentional. By the way, the fire starter Instafire. Insta fire. Um, yeah, it burns really hot. Um, and you can get, they say you can get four fires out of a packet. 
I normally get three. They're like tiny little granules, so you kind of have to take some care to get them in a spot, um, like to get them cupped in, because if you just kind of pour it in your stove, it's going to be all over and kind of hard to, to get lit, right? But um, they work really well. Um, Instafire, we do make tents from your solo tent all the way up to like a, you know, a 24 person TV if you, if you care to get one that big. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, we, but we, yeah. We saw quite a few other hunters while we were in there, um, both at airstrip camps. And then as we just, you know, we're going through the mountains and I think over 50% of the camps we saw had seek outside shelters, hmm. um, you know, just for November hunts where you need a hot tent. It's a mark. I would say, you know, we talked about being humble before we started this podcast and the importance (laughs) of staying humble and maybe of some vulnerability, you know, being honest and vulnerable and stuff. But I would say that that's probably pretty fair. Our density on a lot of hunts is pretty high. Um, So. Mm Um, well, I don't know how much time we have left, but one thing I want to share with you guys, just that, you know, you sometimes run across these cool, random things that happen when you're in the backcountry. Um, and this area of the Frank, some, some people who are far, far hardier than myself choose to hunt this by boat because you can float through big stretches of the Frank in November. And obviously that's, you got to have a lot of the right gear and the river, river skills. Yeah. Brett. I thought he was doing that because he wasn't hardy. I thought it was like <laughs> for him. Well, see, that's why I asked you who was on the trip, because if, if Brad was on there, then I thought maybe we could, like, you know, give Brad a hard time, you know, and then we could invite him on a podcast to defend himself, right? Gotcha. And we get more episodes out of it. Now, you know, at the risk of not being humble, I'm, I'm certainly not an elite athlete, but I do pretty good in the mountains. You know, I'm a big, tall guy and pretty athletic and um there's only been a handful of guys that I've spent time with on trails or in the mountains that can absolutely put me in the dirt. And I got to give Brad credit where it's due. He can, uh, he can put me in the dirt pretty quick. That guy can cover some big, steep miles. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Okay. I but, put about Brad. Yeah. <laughs> but getting this story. So, um, as I mentioned, Tyler and I tagged out fairly early in the trip and we had an opportunity on one day just to go on a big hike to see some new country. And as we're coming out that evening, we see three boats coming down the river and it's fairly late in the day. There's only like an hour of daylight left. And we know they've probably got a good five miles to go to the nearest pullout where there's an airstrip. And typically the rafters float that far. You know, we, um, the trail was fairly close to the river at that point. So we glass up and two of these boats have really nice bucks. And the third boat, um, does not have a buck. And we noticed that we happen to see them, right? As they're going through a, a smallish rapid and, Clearly, one of these guys has not spent a lot of time on the oars because uh, they're just you know, ping-ponging off every damn rock through this rapid, which is fun to watch. <laughs> and then the way the river worked, it went around a big bend and then came back close to the trail. So we were actually kind of on the trail that shortcut. So we saw these guys go through the rapid. And then the way we hiked, we come over this little hill and we're close to the river. And one of these boats, um, we look over and the thing is actively going flat. And it's, you know... 15 degrees outside maybe it was a little warmer than that but it's going to be cold that night and there's there like i said five miles from the nearest pullout and 
we're close enough that we're within earshot and they yell over, hey, do you guys have any hot water? And I was like, what in the hell? And so um, earlier that day, like I said, Tyler and I went on this big hike and I gave him so much shit because he took his whole backpacking stove with him that day to make himself a hot lunch. And I just, you know, mm. took a sandwich or something. Well, not only make a hot lunch, but he made himself a big thing of coffee. And he, we'd all brought thermoses, like having those you know, double walled thermoses are really a sweet way to go on a hunt like this because you have hot beverages. Well, thankfully, Tyler hadn't drank all his coffee because what happened to the raft is that when they set up, you know, packed up their camp and started floating that day, the valve where you put air in, some water got in there and then frozen hard. They had no way. So the valve wouldn't reseal so, and they had no way to chip away at that ice. Tyler's sitting there with half a cough or half a thermos worth of coffee. So we run down to the river. We pour Tyler's coffee right onto the valve. The ice melts. They use their pump, pump the thing right back up, full raft, head on down there. And I mean, just <laughs> pure luck that we hit the trail right when these guys were coming through. They would have been in a real pickle. Um, mm. And super nice folks, a uh, man and a woman and a dog. And you know, they just floated out. They were done with their hunt and you know, got to end on a high note rather than sitting on the side of a river with a flat boat trying to figure out how to heat up their valve. Hmm. First thing that comes to my mind is they they didn't have to pee all day long. <laughs> but that's but maybe they, maybe that wasn't. That's a good point. I don't. I mean, obviously, that probably would have been their go-to move, right? But then they would probably have to at least pull over. There may be some aiming challenges where you're in a in a sure, boat. Sure. I, um, plus, I, I, I don't I don't know the full scenario. Know, but... happens, if you're like if you're walking down the river and you see someone like trying to pee on a very specific place uh, on their I'm boat gonna... as it's rocking up and down yeah. and he's maybe trying not to go overboard. Yeah, but my, my thought is, is it but got, he, the raft got bit by a rattlesnake and he's just trying to save it. <laughs> not, not to mention they're in full dry suits that time of year. So just just to. Getting undressed mm. for uh, going to the bathroom. Sorry, the pain in the ass. See, see, I'm saying I didn't know the whole story, but that was the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, um, that's crazy. Yeah, and has, so had they been doing that, like they've been doing that all day, just or or it's been I, going flat all day. Yeah, they hadn't floated very far that day. I don't know if they hunted mm. or you know it was the last day of the trip. They just took their sweet time packing up camp, um, and so they were. I don't think they had super far to go. But they just didn't realize that the valve had frozen over like that. They just didn't have yeah. the resources. But man, those rafters that do that, they need a lot of gear. They need really good gear and they have to be really smart. Because um, mm. boy, you, you can get into trouble in the mountains easy, but uh, you can get into trouble in cold water really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Uh, one of the cooler outdoor things I ever did many years ago, I took the Swiftwater Rescue course got a certification and man it, we did in april in montana and we spent two days swimming in rivers in april it was like 38 degrees outside temperature and uh where you learn a lot and and the guys that taught it this was out of missoula or just outside of missoula really a neat class so if anybody really likes spending time on the water or just wants a cool outdoor adventure sign up for a swift water rescue course it was really neat i had an opportunity to do that when i was on the um rescue team because we did some of that stuff but I'm not super, super confident in the water. I would rather um, spend my time doing other things, um, say taking a tracking class. Um, so that's kind of the route I went. 
Um, real quick, I got I got one more question. You were talking about drying drying socks. Um, do you do you bring sleeping socks? Is that part of your part of your kit to bring like a a dry pair that just lives in your sleeping bag that you put on at night, keep your feet warm? Yeah, I've got a I've got a three sock system that I'll describe in probably too much detail here. So two of them are just you know regular pairs of like a merino wool or merino wool blend sock, and I'll wear them on alternating days. So when I get back to camp at night or when I'm getting ready to go to bed, I'll put on whatever socks that have just been in my pack all day or back at camp all day. So those are dry while I sleep, and then I let the other pair dry overnight. The third pair I have is a big, thick pair of wool socks that I cut off just above the ankle. And those serve two purposes. I, like I said I mostly do archery hunting, so I keep those with me as like my stocking socks. So I can slide those, if I need to take my boots off for a stock, I can just put those on over the top of the socks I'm already wearing. So it keeps my feet a little bit more protected and it's super quiet as I walk through the woods. And then if you get sap and needles all over them, you don't ruin one of your pairs of socks you need to be hiking in for the next couple days. And the other purpose these wool socks serve, um, and I've only done this a few times, but I did it every single day on this, this hunt um, in November, was I can take the knee pads out of my pants and slide them right into there. And I got big feet, I got size 13s, and the knee pads are just barely small, too small, but they work well enough, I slide them in the socks. So if I have to get up and do little camp chores or you have to, in the night to pee, you slide those in, you got the insulation from the knee pads, walk around, take your pee, works slick and, you know, double purpose. You're not carrying extra camp shoes as weight. You just have these wool socks. Hmm. That worked really well. That's a good idea. I, I have a tendency to take two to three pairs, like uh, socks, like wool socks, and I will maybe take a neoprene sock in case things are real wet. Um, I find that the neoprene are never comfortable, but you're never awful in them. Yeah, so. I I have some thin Gore-Tex socks that I on occasionally use, but same thing, you just, they're not that comfortable. They eventually, eventually you feel like you're still getting wet, even if you're not, I don't know. But you don't, but you don't go to freezing to death type True. of things, you know? Yeah. Your feet, your feet stay moderately uncomfortable, never, <laughs> never totally uncomfortable mm. yeah um if i if i could uh since we're talking about gear and some clothing stuff i, I do want to put in a little plug slash teaser um as you guys know um, i'm the first lights based here in idaho and i was fortunate enough to be a product tester for them throughout this most of 2020 for some uh, stuff they're going to have coming out soon and and uh, I, I was able to wear some of their their prototypes of some pants coming out and I can't say anything about them, but, um, uh, just yet, but I do, I've heard through the grapevine that, uh, in March, some of this information will be released and I had nothing but really positive experiences. So any of your listeners that are first light fans, um, there's some, there's some really cool pants coming out uh, fairly soon. So keep your eyes open. Cool. Can you Sweet. tell us what materials it's made from? <laughs> Uh, not quite yet. If we, if, if we'd recorded this in a few weeks, apparently I could have said a little bit more, but we got to keep, keep that close to the vest. Um, yeah, I will say I was very impressed and, uh, in conditions from very early season to very late season. Um, and, and there was, I had opportunity to try more, more than one thing. If we ask you like very specific questions, can you answer yes or no? Does it, do they stretch? 
Um, I, I think I can say yes to that one. That's that's pretty easy. I don't know how much further we can go from. We're gonna there. we're gonna keep working at getting you in a corner. Um, yeah, exactly. Do, do they? Do, can you clip them to your shoelace? I'm I'm just gonna uh, I'm gonna start you know misguiding you now, saying all these crazy things like oh yeah they're they're hot pink, you know, <laughs> neon racing stripes. Nice, nice, form fitting. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. They're basically yoga pants. That's good, man. <laughs> They're lycra. They're like lycra. They're they're very similar to cycling pants. Only they're you can hike them. Pants? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, That's just cool. we get a bunch of hunters running around in yoga pants outside. That's <laughs> not a pretty sight in the woods. <laughs> uh, they're super yeah. lightweight though, and and fast, and yeah, warm. Can double as a base layer. Yeah, yeah. Many, many years ago, I had. Uh, I'd taken a GoPro with me on a hunt in Montana and didn't, I don't know how I even accidentally hit it to the setting where it like takes a picture every minute or something and uh, got back to camp and I was going over to bathe in the stream that was near our tent and then come back and didn't realize until after the trip came back and thankfully, you know, there were, there were other guys around so I you know, kept my boxers on the whole time I was in the tent but I have these very, as I'm going through my photos all of a sudden I see these very strange photos of myself wandering around the woods in my underwear. <laughs> well, my bathing strategy in the summer is usually to pitch a tent in full sunlight next to a creek and then just jump in that creek and then you run back in the tent and the tent will likely if you're up above tree line even at like 12.5 or something it's going to be like 100 degrees from the sun yeah and so it's going to be uh, you'll dry out real quick in that and you get refreshed from the jump into the snow melt. Um, yep. So, well, um, that leads me to one other thing. We, you know, I mentioned we had all these supplies back at the airstrip when we made the meat run. One thing we brought with us was a lot of wet wipes um, because you, you're going to be out there for a week and it's too cold to be you know, jumping into the water. So, um, when we made that meat run, we did a pretty good wet wipe bath back there, which. You know, also boost morale. You just feel like you have a little more energy when you get a little bit cleaned up after you've been back there for a long time. And I don't know how much of that was due to the wet white bath or how much was, like I said, we had cold beer and, and candy bars <laughs> and, and Nutella bagels back there. So you're eating a Nutella bagel, drinking a beer, wiping yourself down. Yeah, I, I, I recently did a trip to the Gila, right? Yeah. Um, about a week, and my bathing strategy was hiking to hot springs. Well, there's quite a few hot springs in Idaho. Is there any way you could make the hunting trip into a hot spring tour? So like every third day you have a nice soaking pool? Kevin, I don't know what you're talking about. There's no hot springs in Idaho. It's pretty much just a barren land full of wolves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wolves and grizzly bears everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome, Josh. Well, I don't have any more notes. Um, I, I think actually, can you give just the, the quick three, three, three second version of, of your hunt? So you, you guys each got a deer. Um, at least the guys who had tags, the fourth guy was along for the ride and, and packing meat. So y'all got a deer. It was a six, successful trip. Um, and you got out on time. Is that kind of. Yeah, Den Dennis, you just asked the guy to tell a short version of a hunting story. This is like the <laughs> hardest thing ever to do, but I'll do I'll do my very best. Um, yeah, so we went in there, and um, I'd never been on this hunt, and Ace had done this before. He said that you know there's a good chance we could find you know get a good deer, and he'd got a really pretty nice deer in there. 
um, previously. So I kind of told myself going in there, if I see a buck that would be my third best mule deer or better, I'll shoot it. Regardless of the day, that was kind of, you know, we all set up these rules in our head. Um, and I've been fortunate to get one good buck in Idaho and one buck, good mule deer buck in Montana. So I didn't have like a really high bar. I'm not a you know, world-class mule deer hunter by any stretch. So yeah, first, yeah, we flew in the one day, got camp set up, did a little bit of glassing, and then the weather just blasted us out of there. Um, so the second day was our first real day of hunting. So yeah, we hiked up one of the first ridges, started spotting deer right away. Um, and I know you asked me to make this short, but I, I like telling these funny things that happen. You're good. So we get up next to this big cliff. It was really cool because we could actually see there was an old fire pit in there. It's one of those spots you get there and you're like, oh, hunters have been using this exact spot for decades or far beyond that, right? Hmm. And uh, it was just cold and snowy and terrible. But we'd spot a few does and then uh, nature called and I had to go use the bathroom. And it was terrible because the only place to get away from my buddy and to get a you know place I could pop a squat was just on the windy side of the ridge and the snow and it was it was not a, a fun experience but right at, right as I'm finishing up business this big golden eagle flies by like 10 yards in front of me just on the thermals on this knife ridge and uh, I don't know I've got a little bit of a I don't know what you want to call it some sort of belief I, I tend to have found that in the past if I'm if I have some sort of bird of prey come near me on a hunt, it's almost always leads to success. I've had some cool experiences with owls and other eagles. And anyways, I come back around the front where Tyler's glassing and it's like, yeah, those does are still there. And I, I jump behind the spotting scope one more time and I'm like, oh, there's a good buck bedded right there with them. We just hadn't seen it for the first 20 minutes. And uh, so we put a sneak on it and yeah, made this really fun sneak, got into about 200 yards and uh, laid in the snow forever because this thing was bedded and I didn't feel comfortable shooting it while he's bedded the snow is blocking him and thing finally stands up I've been laying there freezing my ass off and uh, yeah so I I shoot and first words out of my mouth were did I miss and this is kind of a cross canyon shot and uh, thankfully the deer had to go up now they start moving out and, and Tyler goes no 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 he's hit he's hit hard and I look you know over my scope and this thing's limping bad just like you would like far side shoulder limping really bad but he's still got like 200 yards so i rack another one in and he stops and looks back and after he's moved about 50 yards i shoot again and he just drops in his tracks and starts sliding down the mountain well we go over to him and you know it, it was not a great but it was it it was kind of a cool tall three by three with um i called it the basketball buck it looked like it just wrapped right around a basketball um and we get over there and i flip him over and it's pretty it seems like there's only one hole and i'm like well that's that's weird. Oh, and the, there was one hole right at the base of the neck, which was certainly not where I was trying to shoot, but that, that would explain why I dropped on the second shot. Well, we go over there, and he had somehow, we don't know if it was through a former shot or an injury, his far side leg was broken right above the knee joint, um, and like all, you know, it healed over. It was all black and nasty. It wasn't a recent injury, but this this old buck, he, was, he still had like nine does with him, a three-legged buck out there, and I think I just, well, I know now, I flat out missed my first prone shot at 200 yards. I don't know what, what happened to me. Uh, mm. So it's a good thing I took that second shot. Anyways, yeah, so yeah. we got we got my buck packed down out of there. Uh, it was real steep. I mean, it was only a 200-yard shot, and I think it took us a little over an hour to get to the buck after I killed him. Um, and then got him back out in there. It was, a, it was a miserable pack back to camp, even though it was short. It was just snowy and awful. And Hung them in a tree. Um, another thing I'll point out, have good game bags on a long hunt like this. Your meat could be hanging for a long time. You don't want game bags that are going to rip. Um, 
mm -hmm. really heavy. So we used uh, we used Brad's Argali game bags, and they worked really well. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the next day we went up with Tyler and uh, Glasson area, and we saw we had a bighorn ram cross right in front of us, which was kind of neat to see it work across the canyon. They moved through that country really fast, and then just snuck up, said his buck bounced out um, in front of us, and but then went up and over a ridge, and we were able to make it to the top and put a sneak, and thankfully he was still there with a bunch of does. And uh, yeah, the, the bitter brush in that country can be like 10 feet tall. So it makes you almost feel like a little kid, you know, like when you used to build forts and play guns or something, you're like bouncing from one bush to the next and you're trying to stay in the shadows and these giant bushes. But Tyler made a good shot on that buck and <clears throat> got it hung. And um, and then I think it was the next day, Tyler and I took ours back. And when we got back to camp that night, <clears throat> Ace had told us he shot a buck that evening, but it was far enough away that he, he just gutted it out and then hustled back to camp. Um, so all four of us got to go in and pack that out the next day, which was good because it was, I think his ended up being seven, eight miles from the airstrip, which we didn't uh -huh. do in one day, but you know, brought it back to camp. And we were all tired by that point. Cause, mm. um, and that only allowed just that one extra day where Tyler and I went on the hike and ran into those rafters. And the rest of the time was simply flying and hiking, packing meat, uh, and packing deer. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun, but we did, yeah, we, so we hiked out back to the airstrip because we knew the weather was supposed to get really nasty too. We were supposed to fly out, I think it was on a Saturday. So on Friday, we started hiking out and tried to reach out to the pilot and say, hey, you know, we hear the weather's supposed to get bad. Could you get us today by chance? He said, uh, maybe. And then like 20 minutes later, we get a text like, nope, weather window's closed for the day. Hopefully tomorrow morning at your regularly scheduled time. And uh, so we go back and sleep at the airstrip that night, and it's just nasty and in the morning we wake up to fog everywhere and we're like oh we're not getting out and uh Dr. Brandon and some other guys that we actually knew in there and they were supposed to fly out that day and one of them got out super early in the oh excuse me one of them got out the day before but um the uh we're sitting there trying to just wait for the pilot this is not looking good and you know, we might be in here for a long time because the weather forecast is bad for like a week mm -hmm. and uh and then we get the in reach from the pilot is like be ready in 45 minutes and you know those in reaches are often delayed a little bit so we go into a mad scramble to take stuff down because you don't want to take down your whole camp before before you, you know, yeah you have yeah. to you don't want to put it back up if you're gonna be in there for several more days yeah and so yeah our pilot came in flew out of there and the flight out was super cool because think you got to trust these pilots right and they fly this all the time but as i'm we're flying out of these river breaks countries there's like these clouds that from a distance, they look like they're solid. And you're like, oh god, am I, am I flying into a real bad situation here? Because we'd fly into them, they were they were uh, open enough you could actually see down through them and see to the bottom, but you couldn't tell that until you actually got into the clouds. So it was really pretty, and because of the fresh snow, you're seeing elk and deer tracks. And we actually uh, uh, saw this was kind of a neat, quick. This will be my last story. During one of the deer hunts, Ace saw a nice bull elk in there, and as we were hiking out that day. Uh, we ran into a guy we knew, and he had an elk tag in there, and he was going back in. Um, and so we were like, hey, we saw this bull in this area. And then as we were flying out on our flight out, we actually saw the bull or, you know, a bull but in that same area. So presumably the first one. And then uh, fast forward, once our buddy got out, he told us that he killed a bull in that area. Hmm. So could have been the same one. It was like, yeah. It's kind of neat just to fly out through beautiful country. Mm-hmm.
Awesome, man. Um, sweet. Thanks. Uh, thanks for thanks for hitting us up and and wanting to do this and taking the time to to tell us the stories. Um, and also, you know, a lot of the a lot of the gear, um, a lot of the gear people need to learn how to dead man in a tent stake. I think that's that's one of my big takeaways most of the yeah. time for people. Uh, dead man, um, some fire starter two bag sleep system i like that i like that a lot synthetic on the outside and whatnot but well, yeah you know i always like to say that most hunts having top-notch gear is usually not that important if the weather's not bad but a week-long hunt in inclement weather like, you better have your gear dialed in and you better have a good plan and like just you know people you can trust to go with those were the biggest keys um and, you know your guys gear played a big part in that and some of the other gear i had with me and um so it's one of those hunts that you don't have to be a, a genius or hardcore, but you, you better have your program fairly dialed if you plan to have an enjoyable time out there. Got to have a spreadsheet. <laughs> how, much time did yeah, you planning, how much time did you spend planning the hunt? Because unlike, unlike, say, an Alaskan hunt, right, an Alaskan hunt, and, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but a lot of the Alaskan hunts, they're going to drop you off at a pretty good spot right off the bat. And the difference with the Frank seems to be that you're going to get flown into an airstrip and from there it's a backpack hiking hunt. You're not, you know, your chance of sitting at the airstrip and killing great deer or having elk walk into it is is pretty minimal. And, I, and I'm not trying to, I'm not criticizing the Alaskan fly-in hunt on that by any means on that, but they have a good idea on where things are moving, say with caribou or with moose, they're, they're not going to fly you in someplace where you're going to try to pack out a moose five miles. You know? Yeah, it's a tough question to ask or answer because we've been thinking about this hunt for a long time and Ace had some good ideas from his previous time in there. Um, and for me, this was completely different because usually I'm the guy that with my group of friends, I'm the one usually picking our spots, planning everything, telling everybody this this is the day we should meet. Here's what we should have. And in this one, other than having my own personal gear list dialed and talking to other guys about all of our food plans and you know, what gear we were bringing regarding the location, I would just kind of was like, Oh, we're flying blind. Um, we're not flying blind. We had ACEs information. If we have to adjust from there, we will. Um, thankfully it worked out. And he, he called it. He said, the key to this hunt is just being in there every day and just, keeping up a good attitude, thinking that you're going to run into deer if you spend enough time in there. Um, that's not always the case. A lot of it depends on conditions, but the big storms moving in really helped get the deer moving for us, made them easier to see. Um, so planning, I mean, one way I can answer that is say I've been planning it for years because I've been fine-tuning my gear list for, you know, 10 years plus. And in other ways, it was just a couple weeks in advance making sure we had, you know, taught everybody did what they said they were going to do as far as what food we were bringing in, what stoves we were using, that sort of thing. And uh, and being that we had that that airstrip camp makes a huge difference. It's a lot like when you have a pickup, right? Like if if you have extra gear when you go on a normal hunt, you usually use leave a lot of it at your pickup truck because if the shit hits the fan, you can just hike back to the truck and resupply or camp there. And I just thought of the airstrip as the same principle. So we had the space. We just set up a great big tent with a bunch of gear. Having a big base camp is certainly valuable. I've done that a few times, and there's times um, one of 
one of the things we Nathan and I talked about last year's hunt would have been made better if we would have uh, set up a base camp um, because it just makes it easier when you start to get animals down you have I can sleep back there or I can sleep up here or whatever you know instead yep. of oh if I go there it's there's nothing for me you know at this moment yeah I, I totally agree that's in the key to um, one of my keys to success with elk in archery season is having a full sleeping setup back at the truck extra food an extra stove like everything I need essentially like a full second kit ready to go extra yeah. clothes and you know it's mm -hmm. worked out several times um, yeah cool be prepared yeah <laughs> and have it and have a spreadsheet I, re I really think we need to get on the spreadsheet game dude Kevin. those those long distance backpackers there's a reason they all have spreadsheets makes mm. makes things a lot easier mm -hmm. kevin I, I i know you're not the world's most organized guy but maybe we'll start you with like a real simple one i'm happy to share mine with you uh, that would be awesome if you could share yours with me or with us um Yes, my list is much more like f some food, water filter, something to sleep in, something to be under, and throw it all in. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll share it with you. Just promise to not share it with my wife because if you start doing the math on things, uh, <laughs> it starts. If the price tag next to it, it'll, it'll not look good. Yeah. I always tell people there's a reason I drive a 15-year-old pickup truck. It's so I can have really nice hunting gear. Mm -hmm. It's what's inside that truck, right? That, that's what counts. Yep, yeah. yep. Yep, I drive a 15-year-old vehicle as well. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, Josh. Well, again, thanks uh, Thanks for hitting us up, and, and thanks for sharing the stories, and, and hopefully everyone out there gets some, some tips. Um, yeah, and, and I'm going to start looking for a 50-degree synthetic bag. So thanks for that one. All right, guys. Well, it was a pleasure. Take care. Yeah, awesome. you Thank too. You. Take care, guys.